Good morning. Welcome to church. Glad you are here with us this morning. And while the kids are leaving, I will move into action here. All right, let's see how this works. How many people have ever been to Juice It Up? Anybody know what I'm talking about? That little place over there by Panera where they have the blended drinks that cost $8.50 or whatever they cost. And up on the shelf at Juice It Up always is this thing. You ever seen that thing at Juice It Up? It's wheatgrass. And they will take the wheatgrass and they will cut the wheatgrass and they put it into a juicer... And I have never, has anybody ever had this before? At, at, they sell it in like a shot glass for like $3.50 for a shot of wheatgrass. And so I have never tried the wheatgrass. I have always, it seems like every time I go in there someone is daring me to try the wheatgrass. But I thought this morning I would try the wheatgrass for the first time. How do you feel about that? Well, yeah, you feel good about it, don't you? Because you don't have to try the wheatgrass. I know how this is, works. All right, there's my wheatgrass. It goes in the blender, and we're going to give this thing a shot. We tested it once last night. It didn't go so well, I'm going to be honest with you. Here we go. I'm going I'm to put this in just to make life a little easier and hopefully a little juice for us. All right. How many, I'm a, I, li, I like vegetables. Does anybody, how many people are vegetable people here? Yeah. Come on, baby. Give me some grass juice. That's all I'm asking for. Oh, 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 oh. It's starting to come out. Ah! I'm fine, by the way. I, I do need a... Oh, yeah, I got stuck last night, too. I do eat... I eat a lot of salad. How many people eat salads here? I like most vegetables. Do you guys like vegetables? I am not a vegetarian. Can I get an amen out of anybody? I am not a vegetarian. Do we have any vegetarians here? Vegetarians? Anyone? Anyone? Oh, there's one over there. God bless you, you vegetarians. I used to have one in my house. Then she started... Oh, look, the green stuff is coming out. You see it? Uh, it's coming out really slow, though. <sighs> vegetarians are the best. You ever eat fast food in front of a vegetarian? They look, like, they, they look at you like you're barbecuing a kitten. You ever seen that? Like, they get so upset about being, you know, and, and you're like, yeah, I'm eating fast food. It probably won't digest for, oh, it's coming out right now. I probably won't digest this for a few years. Right? Vegetarians, though, one of the things about vegetarians is they, oh, it's coming out. You see it? Vegetarians brag about ve being vegetarians. You ever see veg vegetarians brag about being vegetarians? They say, I haven't eaten meat in like five years. And I'm like, I haven't eaten kale in like five years. You don't see me bragging about it, right? What's worse than, you know what, it's too expensive to be a vegetarian. How many people know this? When you go to eat out and you order a salad, a salad is like 13 bucks. And then on the same menu is like four burgers for a dollar. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're like, this seems fiscally irresponsible to be a vegetarian. Oh, man, it's coming out. It's coming out slowly. You know what's worse than vegetarians, though? Vegans! 
vegans, vegans are, you know what, the funny thing about vegetarians and vegans is, is they, they're going to be the first one to tell you that they're a vegetarian or a vegan. Do you notice that? They're going to tell you that right away. All right, there we go. I think I got just enough to try this. Ugh, this is going to be better second service, trust me. Vegans, though, will brag about it, too. One of my problems with vegetarians and vegans is they brag about it, right? Vegans will say, but my, you know, my energy is higher. I sleep so much better. I lost all my friends, right? <laughs> they, they just brag about that stuff. Now, here's the interesting thing about vegetarians and vegans. Ironically, in chapter 1 of Daniel, we see that Daniel and his friends were all... They were vegetarians. They may have even been vegans. I don't want to admit that. And all the vegans cheered. Yes, the two of you cheered. I think it's because the vegans are too weak to cheer. Yay! Um, don't send me emails, vegans, please. I'm just joking. They were vegetarians. They were vegans, right? And, and, but they weren't jerks about it. They just did it quietly. And King Nebuchadnezzar, we are going to see today, is going to become a vegan in front of our eyes. In fact, he's going to do it the hard way. A vegan who only eats grass. Here we go. Can I be honest with you? That is terrible. That is terrible. My goodness. The people at Juice It Up said that it would, uh, it would, get, it would make my skin more dewy. It would give me greater focus and immunity. i got to be honest with you. I do feel like I have superhuman strength right now. I, I don't know why, but uh, I feel like I might be a little better than all of you. That's what we're going to talk about today. We are going to talk about pride, and we are going to talk about learning humility and learning humility the hard way. If you have a Bible, break it out. If not, you got notes, stick with me. We are going to work through this story in Daniel chapter 4, and it starts with Nebi having a new dream. Nebi's new nightmare. Here's what it looks like. In verse 4, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in what? Comfort and prosperity. Comfort and prosperity. But one night, I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. So, this part isn't in your notes. It is up on the screens. If you've got a Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 4. If you are new to the Bible, we've got some Bibles in front of you. If you have it on your phone, we're in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. If you have it on your phone, just search for Daniel, and you'll find it. Daniel chapter 4. But I want you to listen to Nebi's dream. Here's how it goes. While I was lying in my bed, this is what I dreamed. I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth. The tree grew very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves, and it was loaded with fruit to eat, for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade, and birds nested in its branches. All the world was fed from this tree. Then, as I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And the messenger shouted this, "'Cut down the tree and lop off its branches.'" Shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Chase the wild animals from its shade and the bird from its branches. But leave the stump and the roots in the ground bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Now, 
Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field. For seven periods of time, let him have the mind of a what? A wild animal instead of the mind of a human. For this has been decreed by the messengers. It is commanded by the holy ones so that everyone may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even to who? The lowliest of people. Now, I want us to focus on the very first verse to begin with. It says that Nebuchadnezzar was living in his palace in comfort and prosperity. Nebuchadnezzar's living the good life, right? He's basking in his success. He doesn't have a worry in the world. He is just living the dream at his uh, palace. And if you remember the last chapter of King Nebuchadnezzar's story, Glenn talked to us about Nebuchadnezzar outside of the furnace. He's cast Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, and now they are walking out of the furnace. When he looked in, he saw what looked like a fourth man, looked like the son of God. And these guys walk out of the furnace and are unsinged and don't even smell of smoke. And he has seen God's power. But if you remember how that story started, it started with Nebuchadnezzar building an idol of himself, 90 feet tall, made out of pure gold. Anybody else see a problem with that? Anybody else think this guy's got an ego problem? If I erected a statue of me outside of my house, would you drive up and go, we got a problem here, Steve, right? We do. You would have a problem, right? And so we see the seeds of pride already in Nebuchadnezzar's life all those years earlier. But it's about to get worse. And here's where pride begins. It begins with comfort and complacency. It begins with comfort and complacency. Get this. The more successful you are, the longer you are successful, the more you begin to believe it's all about you. The more you start to believe, well, I'm the one who... Who, who's made all this happen. Uh, pain and suffering in our world is very difficult, but success can be fatal sometimes. You know what I'm talking about if you've met somebody who is successful, but they just turned into a jerk along the way, right? Because you start to believe your own hype. You, you start to forget those who helped you succeed. You forget that God in heaven was the one who actually gave you these skills. And God in heaven dropped you into this circumstance where you had the opportunities that you did to succeed. But every time somebody pats you on the back, your head starts to swell. Do you know that? It's like, hey, it's like, hey great sermon, pastor. That was hilarious. Man, Have you been working out? Your skin looks so dewy. Right? And and, and you more and more start to believe that stuff. And the longer you are successful, and the longer that you are comfortable, you get complacent, and the more and more you slide into pride. And sometimes you don't even notice it. Right? Sometimes you become a jerk and you're actually starting to believe that you are better than other people. Whatever you do right now, do not look at your spouse. Whatever you do, do not look at your spouse. But this is when you need a spouse. Right? This is when you need your wife or husband to look at you and say, oh, you are not all that, Mr. Man. Get in there and finish the dishes. That's what you need in that moment. But it's so easy to slide into that prideful 
attitude. And, and get, so here's the story continues. Nebi goes to all the wise men, the enchanters and, and magicians, and he says, interpret my dream. None of them can do it. So he goes back to old faithful Daniel, who can always interpret the dream. And take a look at this. Daniel uh, interprets another nightmare for him. Daniel interprets another nightmare for him. Daniel 4, we're in verse 19. It says this. Upon hearing this, Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, that was the name they gave him in Babylon, was overcome for a time. What was he? He was frightened by the meaning of the dream. Then the king said to him, Belteshazzar, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. And Belteshazzar replied, Daniel replies, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to who? Your enemies, my Lord, and not to you. Now, this is an interesting verse to me. There are two ways that I can look at this verse, right? Daniel knows the dream. He knows the interpretation of the dream. In fact, he even knows what it's going to mean for King Nebi in just a little bit. And there's one or two ways to look at this. Maybe he's sucking up to Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know about you, but I don't want to tell the most powerful guy in the kingdom what this dream means, knowing what it means. Maybe he's just trying to suck up to him a little bit and say, uh, hey, this is going to be bad. I know i got to tell you, but uh, I don't want this to happen to you, just so we're clear, King Nebi. Um, but here goes, this is what it means. The second option, and this is the one that I actually think is probably more true, is that possibly Daniel has actually come to love this pagan king. He, he maybe has actually come to love this guy. Most scholars think at this point Daniel is more like 45 years old. If you remember in the first dream he was about 17. Now he's like 45 years old at this point. He was in a position of power and influence in Babylon for almost 30 years at this point. And, and, and you've got to understand King Nebuchadnezzar ran over his home. Took him as a teenager and brought him back to Babylon in captivity. They, they burned and raised the towns there back at home. And maybe even killed Daniel's parents. It's hard to know for sure, but maybe Daniel, after 30 years of working alongside this guy and near this guy, sees his faults. He knows how sinful he is. He knows how prideful he is. But maybe he has just come to love the guy anyway. You got anybody like that in your life? They're a jerk. They are sinful you look at them and you think, oh gosh, if you only had some, you need some Jesus. You ever had people like that? But you love them anyway. Like you want them to come to know God. You love them anyway. And I think Daniel has come to love this pagan king. Daniel recounts the dream exactly like he did in chapter 2. And he says this in Daniel 4, verse 24 through 26. This is what the dream means, your majesty. And what the Most High has declared will happen to my Lord the king. Get this, this is hard to say. You will be driven from human society and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will what? Eat grass, Eat grass like a cow. Mm, right? I'm not doing it. And you will be drenched with the dew of heavens. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to who? Anyone, Anyone he chooses. But the stump and roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven rules. Now I try to imagine this moment where Daniel knows the interpretation of the dream. He's going to confront this king with a very harsh truth, right? It's a very harsh meaning to this dream. It must have been nerve-wracking to stand in front of this guy. 
But it gives me a little insight into confrontation in our world, right? Um, how many people here hate confrontation, don't like, where are my people pleasers? People pleasers, hate confrontation, right? You live under this mantra, right? Hey, listen, it's none of my business, none of my business. It's none of my business. Hey, live and let live. Like, I, don't, I don't need to get involved in this, right? Who am I to judge, right? Those are people who, who hate confrontation, how many people here are natural confronters? You have no problem confronting people. You gotta love them, man. They shoot their hand up. Me! That's me. I will tell you right now. Right? Um, <laughs> you guys are, I know, natural confrontation people are the best. They are just waiting for me to say something wrong and start the email, right? They're getting ready to do that. Or, or they're, natural confrontation people, you please step away from the Facebook, okay? That's all I'm asking. Natural confrontational people walk into a party and the people start to migrate away from them, right? But here's the thing. Neither of those is right or wrong. No matter how you're disposed to confrontation, you need to examine your motivations. Get this. Don't confront others to be right. Confront others to, to make others right with God. Don't confront others to be right just so you can be right. Confront to make others right with God. Now, this is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, but I argue that the digital world has made us far more confrontational than ever before in our past. It's true. It is so easy to fire off an angry email. It is so easy to make a nasty comment on social media to do that in, and just fire it off, right? And, and it is so easy to send a snarky text message to somebody. And these are things that I would argue you would never do face-to-face -to, -face to someone. If you were standing in front of them and having a conversation with them, you would never do it face-to-face -face with them. You put a screen in between us and watch me go, right? And, and so the funny thing is that some people just want to be right. They just want to win an argument. They just, they love confrontation and they just want to be right. And when the argument, argument, even if they lose a relationship, even if they will lose a relationship. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't confront people with sin. We need to confront people with sin. I'm not saying we shouldn't confront people with bad theology. They say, well, I don't think that's what the Bible says. And I say, well, I think you're wrong because let me show you here what it says. Right? We need to be able to do those things, but you have got to be motivated by love for that person. You've got to be motivated by bringing that person back to God, closer to God. It can't be about winning an argument. This has got to be genuine concern for people. You can confront in pride or you can confront in humility. And I would argue that we are called to confront people even in humility. And so I believe Daniel had this genuine love for this pagan king, and he genuinely wanted to see him come back to God and get this. Nebuchadnezzar had acknowledged the true God. He had acknowledged it in, in chapter 1. He had acknowledged it in chapter 2. He had acknowledged it in chapter 3. And here we are a few years later, and he's now not acknowledging it. He's just trying to get, how do I get you back to God? Daniel 4, 27, he actually gives Nebuchadnezzar a way out. He says, listen to this, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right and break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. 
And Daniel tells Nebi, he tells him this. Listen, humility begins, it begins with repentance and living for others. Humility begins with this repentance and then living for other people. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It, it, it's, it's not thinking that I'm worthless, I'm no good, I don't have gifts or talents, you do. It's thinking about that stuff less and more about the people that are around you. It's about less looking in the mirror and more looking out the window, right? And, and because there are people out there that are suffering while you're living in luxury. Listen, serving the poor, serving those less than us, get your eyes off of you. I don't know if any of you, I, how many people here have been on a short-term mission trip to someplace else in the world? You go to a third world country. We just had a group of kids get back from Barnabas where they were serving these kids for a full week and walking around them. I have to do that about every couple of years to remind myself that we live in, do you know we live in a bubble? Do you know that we live in a wealth bubble? Do me a favor. Take out your wallet right now if you've got your wallet with you. I want you to look in your wallet and ask the question, do you have $10? 10, does anybody carry cash anymore? No. Yeah, a few of you do. Okay. I only have $3, which is a sad documentary on my state of things. But if you have $10 in your wallet right now, $10 in your wallet, do you know that you're wealthier than 80% of the world? 80% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. Get that in your head. That is 5.5 billion people with a B on this planet live on less than $10 a day. If you have a refrigerator at home right now that is running and has food in it, you're wealthier than 50% of the people on the planet. We have got to get our eyes off of ourselves. Humility puts our eyes onto someone else. We live in a wealth bubble. And if you go out there into the world, you go out onto a mission trip into a third world country, your bubble pops and it resets your clock. I have to go on one of these trips every couple of years or else I forget that I live in the bubble. Because the things that I complain about, 98% of the world would, would, would roll their eyes and think, what are you even talking about? Right now at home, I have a, uh, the, the, the little handle on my kitchen sink faucet broke, and the water comes shooting out, and it sprays up on me and gets me wet while I do the, the dishes. I mean, while I rinse the dishes before I put them in my dishwasher. And, and any time I, I want to, I just, I just turn it from cold to hot, and hot water comes out of there. Right? It's a silly thing to, we, right now, it is getting bad, people. We definitely need a new sheet set right now on our California king bed, right? And worst of all, worst of all, right now in my car, my Porsche, the cup holders are not working at all. You understand how stupid that sounds? Like, that is the stupidest thing you could imagine, right? Go to a third world country. Watch your pride disappear, because it will. It'll disappear. Watch your humility and your gratitude show up in ways you never thought before, more and more and more. Be merciful to the poor, he says to Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to Proverbs. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says it this way. Speak up for those who cannot what? 
Ensure justice for those, what? Who are being crushed. Yes, speak up for the who? And the helpless. And see that they get, man, take your eyes off of yourself for just a second. And watch your gratitude and your humility grow. So, did Nebi pay attention to this warning he was given? Nope. What an idiot. Listen to what it says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. It says, but all these things, what? They did happen to Nebuchadnezzar. Because, how long? Say it one more time. Twelve months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. And as he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Twelve months later, this is twelve months after Daniel said, can you imagine about being warned? You are going to lose everything if you don't do something right now. And you're like, eh. It's twelve months later, and he hasn't done anything about it. Now, I would like to frame this a little bit for you because I want you to think about Babylon. When I think about Babylon, I think of Dubai, the United Arab Emirates. Now, I have never been to Dubai. Anybody been to Dubai, people? Anyone? Anyone? few people? On a layover? Yeah, When I think of Dubai, Dubai is this extremely wealthy city in the Middle East. Mostly oil money, right? And I read somewhere, in fact, I, I saw this graveyard. There's a graveyard for super exotic sports cars. Because people regularly abandon exotic sports cars on the side of the road in Dubai. They just, they, uh, largely it's people who have gotten into financial trouble and they have payments on the car and they're like, I can't make the payments and it's just easier for me to leave this on the side of the road and hop a jet out of Dubai. And that's what they do. Some people, I, I don't know, I've, I've heard stories, I don't know if they're true, of people who literally run out of gas on the side of the road, they call an Uber and they're like, it's not worth going to get the car. And they tow them to this, to this junkyard in Dubai where, where you can buy these cars for very inexpensive and ship them back to the United States. I'm not saying I'm planning it. I'm just saying, okay? Um, So I want you to imagine this. You're sitting on your balcony on the top of a penthouse, maybe overlooking the yacht harbor where your mega yacht is, is stationed there, right? And you start to think to yourself, man, I have made it. I, I'm killing it. Like, this is my world. My domain. I built this city, right? Uh, uh, you're, you're just a squirrel trying to get a nut. I am the man. And Babylon was like this. Maybe even more so. It's crazy when you read about Babylon. Babylon was in modern day Iraq, and it was the capital of the whole world at the time. It was an architectural wonder. The key feature of Babylon was these hanging gardens of Babylon. The hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Like the pyramids were one as well, which we still have the pyramids. The hanging gardens is gone. But in Babylon, they had these hanging gardens. It was this giant terraced garden palace thing that hung on two different sides of the Euphrates River. There was a tunnel that passed underneath the river. 
and it had waterfalls and vegetation. Nebuchadnezzar built it for one of his wives. Uh, it had a 400-foot waterfall, 400 feet. That's a 40-story waterfall in the, in the Hanging Gardens, right? And the whole city was decked out in jewels and gold. In fact, one contemporary historian, his name was Herodotus, he visited Babylon in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, and this is what he said. He said he had never seen so much gold in his life. It was everywhere you looked. Nebi built a wall around Babylon. The wall was like 56 miles long, and in many places it was over 80 feet wide and 300 feet tall. In fact, they said there are sections of the walls where it was so wide and, and that they would race chariots on the top of the walls around Babylon. Nebi was the most powerful and wealthiest person in the entire world. Historians say that in all of human history, there have maybe been five people that had the wealth and influence of Nebuchadnezzar. So let me ask you a question. Do you hear it in the text there? Where he says, my, my, I, my, my, right? It is dripping with pride by my own mighty power. I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. You hear it? And he had gotten this warning from Daniel. He'd gotten this warning from him. And he said, but he's still, 12 months later, he is standing on his roof, admiring, in the, admiring his view. Here's the lesson for us. Are you ready? Don't put off doing what is right. If you have an area of your life where pride is a problem, where humility needs to come into play, do not wait. Do not wait 12 months to see what is happening. If God is calling you to humble yourself in a relationship, if God is calling you to humble yourself, maybe at the workplace, if God is calling you to humble yourself in some way, do not wait. Do it now. Because the longer you wait and the longer you get comfortable and complacent, the more your pride grows and grows. And maybe you can avoid the consequences if you will humble yourself now. Listen to what Proverbs says. It says, the Lord what? Let that sink in. He detests the proud. They will surely, what? They will surely be punished. And we're going to see that. Here's what happens next. Nebi lost his kingdom and he lost his mind. Just as the dream said. It says in Daniel 4 verse 31, while these words were what? Still in his mouth. He's saying, my, my, I, I, my, my. And while those words are trickling out of his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer the ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals, and you will eat what? Grass, Grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. It says when? While those words are still in his mouth, that same hour the judgment was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow and he was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. There is coming a time where God will say, that's it, I've had enough. Parents, how many people know what I'm talking about? 
You've heard the kids arguing in the back room. It's escalating. You're thinking, maybe it'll die down. It isn't. And then what do you do? You say, that's it. I'm done. Do not make me come back there. Right? And if, you, if you've ever had a time like this in your life where you, you know God just said, okay, that's enough out of you. We see it so clearly in hindsight. But there's a time where God says, that's it, I've had enough out of you. And, and you, you think you got this all under control? You think you're the man? You think you did all this? Watch. Watch. And God says, I have had enough of your pride and your arrogance, your sin and your disobedience. And that same hour, God allows something to rock you to your core. Can I just tell you something? Things come along all the time that rock us to our core. The diagnosis is cancer. There's been an accident. I want a divorce. They OD'd. And, and the hard part is, is I, I want to say that carefully because God doesn't necessarily cause those things. The Bible's really clear about this. It says in Matthew, it talks about how uh, the sun and the rain fall on the evil and, and, the, and the good, and, and it falls on the just and the unjust, Right? But here's the thing that I've learned. God never wastes a hurt. He never wastes it. And Nebi was going to need some real suffering if he was going to learn some humility. And so it took seven periods of time. Most scholars believe that that is like seven years. Now, it says seven periods of time very clearly. But it had to be a long time because it was enough time for his hair to grow into, a, I'm assuming, a full mullet. You know, and, and, and his nails had to grow out until he, they were like claws, right? And, and so most people would say he ate this grass and, and he was covered in dew every morning. Nebi actually did have dewy skin. You know what I'm talking about? He did. And, and you see him suffering as, here's, we're not exactly sure how long seven periods of time it is. I actually think it is seven years. Most scholars think that. Um, but the number seven in the Old Testament means it's the number of fullness, and here's what it means. So this is the Bible's way of saying Nebi suffered the full amount of time. And the other way I word it is this. Nebi suffered as long as it takes. And get this. God allows suffering for as long as it takes. God allows suffering for as long as it takes. It was going to take Nebuchadnezzar, Nebi, that long for him to realize that God is God and Nebi is Nebi. Right? And God is in no hurry. He will wait as long as you need to realize that He is God and you are not. For seven years, the richest, most powerful man in the world wandered around and ate grass and lost his mind. He was a madman for seven years. Listen to what happened seven years later. Seven years later, this is what happened. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, my sanity returned, and I what? Praised and worshipped the Most High, and honored the one who what? Lives forever. It says this, his rule is everlasting, and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of earth. And no one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and my what? Glory and kingdom. 
My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored as the head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, what do I do? Praise and glorify and honor who? The king of heaven. All his acts are just. Imagine saying all his acts are just after you spent seven years eating grass, living as a madman, and true. And he's able to what? Humble the proud. It took seven years, seven periods of time for Nebuchadnezzar to wake up and to get some humility. To remember the God of Daniel. The God who rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the furnace. The God who warned him, gave him a chance 12 months before those seven years. The same God met him in the wilderness, met him in his madness, and humbled him. And get this, Dane said it earlier, this pagan king, this evil, pagan, prideful king is going to be in heaven with you and I. Can you imagine walking up to Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? Because he humbled himself. Which leads me to... So what, Steve? What do I do with this? How do I make sense of this? Well, the hard part is, is most of us don't think we are prideful people. I read a story uh, John Ortberg, a pastor, tells about a, uh, a, a guy who was the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. He pulls up to a gas station in his Ferrari, and the gas station guy behind the counter, he asks his wife to go in and pay for it, and he notices as he's pumping his gas that she's having a really long conversation with the guy inside the gas station. And, and he wonders what's going on, but he just keeps uh, pumping the gas. And when she gets back, he says, who was that? And she says, actually, that's the guy that I dated in high school. And this guy, who was the you know, Fortune 500 CEO driving a Ferrari, says, boy, I'll bet you are glad you married me instead of him, or you'd be married to a gas station attendant. She said, oh, honey, that's so silly. If I would have married him, you'd be the gas station attendant. <laughs> we don't think we're prideful, but we are. And Americans in particular, oh, this is going to hurt. We believe in the self-made man. We believe that we did it, right? Look, I did this. I worked for this. Look what I did. Look what I built by myself for my glory, by my... Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Because we operate in this paradigm. C.S. Lewis said it this way. I, I read this article by C.S. Lewis. It's so good. He says this. According to Christian teachers, which is really all Christian tradition, he says this. The essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Let that sink in. It was by pride that the devil became the devil. And pride leads to every other vice. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. So the question is, where are you holding on to some pride? Where are you holding on to some pride? I'm going to give you very quickly the cure for pride. Here's the cure for pride. Here's the first one. You're not going to like it. The first cure for pride is failure and suffering. Failure and suffering. Nobody wants to hear this, right? Ouch. Failure and suffering. And you may even be going through it right now, and you're like, Steve, I don't want to hear this. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever stopped to ask, is God trying to get my attention in this? 
Is, is God trying to wake me up? Am I clinging to my pride? And is this suffering continuing because I am refusing to look up to heaven and acknowledge that he is God and I am not? That he is the solution and I am not? Failure and suffering for as long as it takes will help you do that. And you can let failure and suffering become bitterness and resentment. So many people do. They they just wallow in it rather than looking up to heaven. The key moment for Nebuchadnezzar is he looks back up to heaven after seven years. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit within us, if you're a believer, will say, Steve, what are you doing? Look up to heaven. This isn't about you. You think it's about you? It's not about you. Right? And in your failure and suffering, you finally looking up, look up. Listen, somebody today, you may be suffering and you may be bitter and you may even be bitter at God himself. Let me ask you a very simple question. How's that working for you? How's it working for you? In your suffering and in your failure and in your pain, God may be leading you back to himself. He's not trying to punish you. He doesn't hate you. He's trying to wake you up. He's not trying to pay you back for something you did. He's trying to bring you back to himself. So what are you going to do about that? And the simple solution for Nebuchadnezzar was to repent. Turn back to God. Repent literally means to turn around, to change your mind, to do a 180. It says in the scripture, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true. That is a 180 for Nebuchadnezzar. That's all it means. It took him seven years, but he turned back to God. And then this is the last one right here. And humble yourself. And get this, humility is a choice. Humility is a choice. God can bring you through some failure and suffering to get your attention, but when you actually embrace humility, you have to choose it. You have to choose it. God will use that stuff in your life, but you have to choose humility. And someone here today needs to hear that because you are holding on to your pride and it is costing you. It is costing you in a relationship. It is costing you at work. It is costing you somewhere because you're holding on to this idea that I'm the man and it's all about me. And if you will just let it go and say, God, humbly, I can't do this. I need your help. I need you to intervene. Maybe even I just need to come back to you, God. He will move in your life. 1 Peter 5, 5 says this. So humble, 5, 6, excuse me. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, you know <laughs> this humility thing has been a journey for me. And I hear you over and over again saying, it's not about you, Steve. It's not about you. God, I know there's somebody here today that is wrestling with their own pride. And maybe for the first time they're seeing it. They're realizing that they have done some damage in a relationship, done some damage spiritually because they're just holding on to this prideful version of themselves. God, would you let us walk in humility? Would you let us turn back to you? And recognize that you are on the throne. That you control heaven and earth. That all your acts are just and true. God, let us be people of humility that the world around might notice. 
In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.